Our God is greater, amen? Good. Uh, Romans chapter 7, if you have your Bible with you this morning. If you don't have one, you can find one in the rack around you and you can uh, follow along that way. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back of that brown table back there. When you leave the auditorium today, make sure you grab one. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word. So Romans chapter 7, but I'm also going to ask you to uh, take a look at Philippians. And so I'm going to need two volunteers this morning to read from Philippians for us. Um, one person who's willing to read from Philippians 3, got a volunteer for that? You know I'm just going to stare until somebody does, right? <laughs> I'm not joking, I'll just stare. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, who's got it? Okay, excellent. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to ask you to read verses 4 through 6. It'll be in just a minute, okay? I'll, I'll tell you when. And then I need one other person to read from Philippians chapter 3, but it'll be verses 7 and 8. Who's going to have that? Okay, excellent, Steve. Thanks for doing that. Philippians chapter 3, and that'll be verses 7 and 8 when it comes time, okay? So last week, we spent the bulk of our time in verse 7, and I'm going to take you back there in just a moment. Um, but I want to pray with you first before we dive into this. And, and so one thing before we pray together, uh, maybe you received this email in the last week and, and you're already aware of this, but a detail that you should be aware of is that uh, John Williams passed away this last Tuesday morning. And John was 87 years old and one of the pillars of the church. And um, the funeral is coming up this week, Saturday. So John has just been uh, this guy who's been like an institution here. He was here when this building was given to us to launch New Hope and a, a, a fierce advocate for advancing the kingdom. And I, I just have one of these vivid images in my mind of John because he had such a quick wit and sense of humor, but yet a passion to advance the kingdom. And one particular Sunday in January, like five years ago, uh, John's wife, Joanne, is struggling with Alzheimer's now. But back then, five years ago, when she was still very healthy, um, she's standing at the front door here, and John had pulled up to let her out. And then he backed out to park in these closed spaces over here, like they're like handicapped spaces. And um, she said to me, would you go out and help John come in? Because it's January and she didn't want him to slip, right? So I'm coming down the steps, working my way towards his car, and he turns and sees me and he says, Joanne sent you out here, didn't she, right? Because no guy wants help, right? So... Um, I said, yeah, she just wanted to make sure you make it inside the building okay. I told her I don't need help. I don't normally park here, but she made me. I don't like to park this close to the building. That's for old people to park in, right? So, yeah. So I make my way over to him, and, and I'm, I'm helping him across the parking lot. We get to the right about the overhang here, and in the wintertime, the sun heats up the icicles, and they drip, and then it hits the concrete, and it freezes. And so I almost to that spot. And John turned to me and he said, you know, I forgot something in my car and he asked me to go get it. So I turned around to go get it and no more do I turn around and walk away from him than he hits that ice and he does a face plant, right? Goes right down to the concrete. Now he's 82, right? And he immediately does like a push-up thing and gets right back up off the ground and looks at me and he says, don't you tell Joanne. Well, he's got a big egg on his head and his nose is bleeding, right? So I'm thinking she's going to know, Right. He's just very, very quick-witted individual, but here's what I remember most about John is his love to see the kingdom advanced. So 10 years ago, we were a brand new church, and John said to me, I'm going to start giving to the building fund because one day we're going to need a new building. We're going to outgrow this place. 
Don't you love that vision, right, that passion to see God's kingdom advance? So I want to pray with you this morning for John's family, for the Williams family, that God would comfort them, be close. And next Saturday is the funeral. I'll be here in the church if you're able to attend. And I also want to pray as we step into Romans 7. So how about if you join me for both of those things? God, I thank you so much for um, the, the legacy that John has left behind and for his... Um, undying passion to see the church advance in the name of Jesus to be glorified. Thank you for him. Thank you for the legacy he's left for each of us. We pray for his daughters and his son that you'd be especially close to them right now in, in their just incredible time of mourning, the absence of their dad in their life. And for us, Father, we pray that you'd comfort us. We miss the guy, but thank you that he's restored and that he's with you and he's enjoying heaven. We now step into your word and we look at uh, Romans 7, Father, and we ask that you would speak to us directly. There, there's things here that you want us to know, and you would not have caused Paul to write them down if you didn't want us to know it. So, Father, in response to that, let it be clear to us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our mind. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. So let me put Romans 7, verse 7 on the screen, and this is the last half of it, and this is Paul kind of admitting something, and you'll see why I say that in just a moment. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, last week, we learned that the law reveals, and one of the things that it reveals is that you and I are rebels. We, at our very, very core, we are rebels, right? Amen? Amen. Okay, like 10 of you agree with that, but we are. We are, even if we won't admit it, we are. We like to push back against the law. We do it all the time, sometimes just completely subconsciously, because that's just who we are. Well, Paul's just kind of sharing his personal conviction of sin here. He says, through the law, something was revealed to him. I wouldn't have known, except for the law, that I was a coveter. It says, you shall not covet. And Paul realized, and we said last week that that's the word for desire, so God's law revealed his high standard, what it is, and, and Paul recognized he fell short of that standard. So check this. Even though Jesus called Paul personally, and many of you know that story of Paul on the road to Damascus where God had to knock him off a horse to get his attention. Even though Jesus called him personally, at some point, Paul had to respond he personally had to confess that he fell short of God's righteous standard. God's law had revealed what a standard is, and it became alive to Paul, and he knew that he fell short. So even though Jesus called him, Paul had to do something with it. So catch this. Paul received God's grace because he believed, not because he earned it by keeping God's law, that's going to come to you very clearly this morning, and the transformation process began for Paul. It was when he understood he just had to receive what Jesus offered, not because he could earn it by keeping the law, because he couldn't keep the law. God said, don't covet. Paul said, I covet. I can't reach the standard. God's law revealed that he couldn't reach the standard. So for you and I, I believe this is true this morning. If you're a Christ follower, I hope you agree with this statement. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, do not keep God's commands to earn His grace. We don't. If you're a believer in Jesus, you already have His grace, amen? If you're a believer, you already have it. So why do we keep His commands? 
We keep his commands because grace transforms us. And Paul is an evidence of that. He's a person who's transformed. So you get to see his story this morning. You're here this morning because of the transformation in your life. I'm just going to assume that many of you are believers in Jesus. It's July in Michigan. You could be out on a golf course. You could be fishing on a lake. You could be doing anything. But you chose to be in church at 11-something in the morning, studying for the 41st week, the book of Romans, right? So you've been transformed. Jesus has done something in you. You're not what you used to be. So we understand the law, then, is preparation for the way of salvation, but the law is not salvation. The law doesn't produce it in the way that many people think it does, thinking that if they just keep it, maybe God will like them enough. Scripture backs me up on this. Look with me on the screen at Romans 3.20. But by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's not the way of salvation, it's just the knowledge of it. Now, it's really obvious to me why the ancients tried so hard to keep the law. And they did. They worked fastidiously to keep the law. By the time the New Testament rolled along, the rabbis had perfected an understanding of what they thought they could do to keep the law. The rabbis had summed up the law in 613 forms, what they called prohibitions and commands, things that they believed they could compel people to do. And it covered everything from personal relationships with your neighbor next door, the things that you should eat, how far you could walk on a given day, the kind of clothes you could wear, what you should do when you go into the temple, how you should talk to the priest. All those things were in those 613 commands. And it became laborious for people. To the degree they couldn't even bear it. So you find Peter in Acts 15.10 saying things like, this is a yoke and we can't bear it. And our parents couldn't bear it. So why in the world did God give the law? Why is the Old Testament of the Bible so full of all of those commands if they're impossible to keep? Well, the law was given to reveal it was given to reveal God's righteous standard, what that standard looks like, and the fact that man falls short of it. But because we're rebels at our very core, we push back against his righteous standard, constantly pushing against God's structure. So Paul talks about that in verse 8. He says, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law, sin is dead. The last part first. It's not that sin has no existence apart from God's law. Long before Moses ever wrote down the Ten Commandments, long before Moses ever walked the earth, sin had already entered the world. Scripture is very clear that it came through one man, Adam, and it infected the entire population of the planet. But because we are rebels at our core, sin does this thing. It uses God's commandments as a launching point into our human nature for the invading forces of sin. We talked about that last week. It uses us like a beachhead. And because we're rebels at our core, it uses the commands. Now, this is really important to comprehend because our human nature wants to rebel against laws that are given. So here's what happens. You tell a child not to go near the water, they immediately want to go near the water. 
This last week, our son Adam arrived from South Carolina, and he brought along with him London and Davis, a little four-year-old and two-year-old. And little London, she's just precious to my heart, but the first thing I wanted her to know was to not go near the pond. We have a little pond on our property. And I said, London, don't go down by the water. Well, what's the first thing a little four-year-old's going to do if you tell him not to go to the water? Go to the water, right? So it's not that she'd never seen water before, it's because... She was told not to go to the water. We're rebels, even when we're four-year-olds, we want to push back. So you find Paul writing at the end of verse 8, apart from the law, apart from God's righteous standard, sin is dead. Well, technically that's true. Until God defines it. Until God says, this is what the law is, sin doesn't really have a placeholder. But God says this is what sin is, and he defines it, and so Paul describes that in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now check this. Talked about this last week, just a refresher for you. The law reveals, the law not only reveals, the law arouses. It wakes up things within us when we hear God say, do not do that. Our rebel nature says, I want to do that because you told me not to do it. The law arouses, but also the law annihilates. And you find that in verse 10. Paul says, that which was to result in life, it resulted in death for me. So catch how he's talking about his own life right here, his own story. He's confessing, in my past, I was alive apart from the law, meaning this. Paul understood that he was on a path of doing good. All the things that he understood to be righteous, the things that he thought he could do to earn God's favor, a quote-unquote do-gooder. Do you have a do-gooder in your life, somebody that you know that thinks they don't need Jesus because God's going to like everybody enough just to let them in one day, that if they just do enough of the right kind of bowing and they're good enough with their money and they don't use the wrong words, and, and perhaps if they're just kind to people, that that's enough. Do you have a do-gooder? Because this is where Paul's saying he was at. I was alive apart from the law. Understand, he's not talking about in the sense of not knowing the law. He's a Pharisee. And by that, he means a good thing. He's using it as a good term. He's not speaking like he suddenly became aware of the law. Even those who don't know Jesus or don't have any relationship with God, according to his own word, says his law is written on their heart. So that's not what Paul's talking about. This guy is an expert in the law, and he is blameless in keeping it. Because he's a do-gooder. He's living a righteous life prior to Jesus. Well, that takes us to Philippians chapter 3, in which Paul is telling us a little bit of his story. So we had one person who was reading to, willing to read the first couple of verses, verse 4 and 6. Could you stand for us and read that real loud, if you would? Yeah. Of the tribe of 
Thank you very much. Do you, you, you catching this pedigree? You, you looking at that on the screen and listening to him read? I did good things. Pedigree. Graduated from the best school. I'm from this nation, from this tribe. I did everything according to the law. And when he was misinformed, he was actually persecuting the church. Why? Because the Sanhedrin selected him as their guy. I did all the things that I thought would get me into the kingdom. I thought God would like me enough to the degree that I even persecuted the church. This sounds like the guy who came to Jesus we read about last week in Mark chapter 10, the 20-something who showed up and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, keep the commands. I said, I've done all those things. I'm good with God. I must be in. That's Paul's attitude here. But through all those years of doing good, he actually was serving only the letter of the law and not following the spirit of the law. But when God revealed to him the depth of his sin, this true understanding of God's commandment, it became really clear to him, and the shackles just came off his eyes. He he could understand what God was talking about. The scales are down because he saw himself spiritually naked. Have you ever seen yourself spiritually naked? I know you see yourself physically naked, right? We do that every day. And, and sometimes, especially as we get older, we go, ooh, I don't like what I see in the mirror so much. It's not such a pretty picture, right? Well, when we see ourselves spiritually naked, it's really ugly. It's a revealing fact of what we're like inside. And that's what Paul's seeing. And he realized just how destructive his true condition is. That's when a person is prepared to meet Jesus. How many of us today, just by a show of hands, I'd be very curious in the 11, because the 9.15 service and the Saturday night service were a great representation of this. How many of us would say that we understand that our need for Jesus today, we understand it better today than the day we met Jesus Christ? Overwhelming majority of us, right? We understand. Why is that? Because as we mature in our walk with Jesus As we understand God's law, we discover just how far short of the glory of God we really are. So when you come to verse 23 and 24 of Romans 7, Paul says this, wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I do do, I don't want to do. How do you explain that? Because on this side, in Philippians 3, 4, you've got a guy saying, I am the cream of the crop the pedigree of Israel. I've done everything to earn God's righteous standard. And as to zeal, there was no one like me. But then you come to this side, the other side of the transformation, and he says, wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, I don't do. How do you explain that other than the fact that God shed some light on him? And he came to this place of understanding. So he says in verse 9, I died How did he die? Well, to the consuming knowledge of what he really was. And at that point, he cries out for a savior. See, Romans 7 is Paul's story. He's telling your story subliminally. He's just underneath it. He's realizing all of his religious activity, all of those things of going to church, all those things of bowing the right way. That's just spiritual rubbish 
if there's not a relationship with Jesus Christ. He actually calls it that himself. Look with me now at Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Who had that one for us? Steve, was that you? Can you read that good and loud for us? Yeah. Thanks, Steve. So catch what this guy's saying. Rubbish is Greek word in your notes this morning. You're going to see it up on the screen. This particular word, skubalon, it's got some depth of meaning behind it because there's terms that we use in the English language today that would be really familiar to us if we started using it in exchange for skubalon when he says, these things that I did all these do-gooder things that I did, you might as well take them and throw them out on the landfill. Put them in the trash can and haul them away because they mounted to nothing. They're dung. And if you don't know what dung is, just find a farmer and the farmer will introduce you to dung and he'll let you shovel some of it for him probably, right? Dung is, is manure, There's other terms for it we won't get into today, but that's what Paul's saying. All of those good things I tried to do, nothing but trash. This is a guy who has realized he's spiritually dead. Self-esteem gone. His self-satisfaction gone. Inflation of his false pride completely shattered because he understood the majesty and the holiness of God's perfect law. Do you have somebody in your life today who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus and you want them to understand how much they need Jesus? Take them to God's law. Take them and help them to see how much they need Jesus through God's righteous standard in the law. But knowing this, Because humans are rebels at our core, they will likely push back when you show it to them. Most people will reject God's righteous standard. So here's how you do it. You do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit can bring conviction of sin. Amen? Okay, I'm thinking there's like two of you that believe it now. Let's work on this, you guys. Let's say amen on three. One, two, three. Amen. Okay, you're going to need that again today. Only the Holy Spirit can bring conviction. Amen? Amen. Okay, here's why I say that. You are not the Holy Spirit. You're not. You can't bring conviction. You can show people God's righteous standard. You can help them to understand. But here's how you have to do it. You have to do it in the way that Paul's doing it. Paul is doing it very humbly. And he's saying, this is who I was. I had all this pedigree. I reached this standard. People in Israel really thought I was something. But God showed me otherwise. God revealed to me my true nature and how I missed his standard and how far short of his glory I actually fall. And he's telling you, this is how I was changed. Jesus did it all. Jesus did everything. He transformed me. So you find Paul with this thought of, I'm just one guy showing another guy how to find Jesus. 
My friend Emerson Egrich, who used to pastor at Trinity Church, was famous for saying, I'm just one guy who's a beggar trying to show another beggar where the bread's at. Just one beggar trying to show another beggar how to find the bread. That's Paul right here in Romans 7. One more thing before we move into verse 12 and finish this up. In verse 11, he uses this word deceived. You might even want to circle that in your Bible because someone who is deceived is thinking a false truth. And he's saying, I was deceived about something. What was he deceived about? He's deceived thinking he's acceptable to God, that he's done enough good things to earn his way in. And he was deceived thinking he's acceptable. What's the translation of that thought? Well, the thought of that is, if I think I'm good enough that God's going to let me in, I have no need for Jesus. Why would I need him if I'm already good enough? So that's why God brings the law to shine a light on our weakness. So all false belief is built on deception, the deception of self-effort that I can earn my way in. So Paul says in verse 12, so then, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Because we understand that a a person who's justly convicted, someone who's convicted of a crime, if they're justly convicted, it's not a conviction because there's fault in the law. The, The fault is with the one who broke the law. So Paul's saying the law that it reveals and that it arouses and that the law condemns, it doesn't make God's law evil. The law is good. It's the one breaking the law that's evil. So King David wrote about this, and this is going to apply specifically to your life. As we look for application out of this, what do we walk out the door with today? Look closely at Psalm 19. This is going to come back around for you in just a moment. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I love that one because I'm kind of simple, right? And God says, I'll make you wise if you spend time with my word. The, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So Paul closes with this thought in verse 13. Does that mean the law caused my death? Look at here. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So under the pure, hot, white light of God's perfect, righteous law, Sin's wretched, dark character is exposed. So the law reveals in order that sin might be shown to be utterly sinful. And this is why this is so important. Because until people see sin for what it really is, they're not going to see the need for salvation. God's got to expose that. He's got to pour that white light on it. So the ultimate purpose of the law is to drive us to the one person in all of history who is capable of fulfilling every commandment of the law, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. 
Don't think that I came to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. He's the only one that could. He's the only one that could meet the righteous standard of God the Father. What a Savior. Here's where this meets your need today. If you're a Christ follower, and I assume that you are, many of you in here have identified yourself as belonging to Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, you still need exposure to God's righteous standards. You still need to spend time in His Word, Old Testament and New Testament. That's why Paul or David wrote about it being precious to him, that, that he hides it in his heart. Why? Because God's righteous standard is elevated in his word. And he reminds us through that, that we do fall short, and we can more clearly see our sin. So even Paul, as a believer in Jesus, says, yeah, that covetous thing, that, that's revealed in me over and over again. You find him writing about that in the rest of Romans 7, saying, I don't want to do things that I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do them. So this is a guy who's still struggling with sin in his life. What does God's righteous standard do for us? It exposes the sin in our life, and it's not enough to stop there. It drives us to the point of confessing, saying to the Father, yeah, I see your standard. I see where I fell short. Praise God for my relationship with Jesus that he saved me. But this is an issue I'm still dealing with in my life. You confess it, and then you repent of it. Repent means to walk the opposite way. I don't want to deal with that anymore, God. I'm going to move away from that thing. Let me give you an example. Judas is the best example you can find in all of the Bible for this issue. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas found himself sorry for betraying Jesus. He recognized what he did was wrong. And he was so sorry to the degree that he committed suicide. So he goes out and kills himself because he's so sorry, but there's no repentance. If Judas had gone to the foot of the cross even while Jesus was on the cross, let me ask you this question and see if you agree with it. Do you believe that if Judas went to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, that Jesus would have given it to him? Say amen if you agree with that. That's your Jesus. That's God the Father. I'm not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. If Judas had gone to Jesus and asked for forgiveness, yeah, he would have bore a weight the rest of his life. So he's sorry, but not to the degree that he repented. There's something different about repentance than just being sorry. It means turning and going to the foot of the cross to recognize what he's done. Because if you don't, you can hinder God's work in your life. You can hinder his activity. That's why David writes, your word have I treasured in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. If you previously measured your standard of righteousness by the good things that you have done. If you previously measured your standing with God, like on a scale system, like I think I've done enough good things to outweigh my bad things, you're probably really struggling right now. Because you're hearing about this guy, Paul, who's got all this pedigree, who's saying, yeah, even that didn't get me there. I'm a wretched man. 
So you're probably struggling right now. Maybe you're thinking, well, what is faith that saves then if it's not just doing good things? Well, I can give you, first of all, an untrustworthy evidence. An untrustworthy evidence of being right with God is morality. Does God want us to be moral? Absolutely. But morality is no indication of salvation. I can point you to a lot of people who are not believers in Jesus Christ that put believers in Jesus Christ to shame with their very high standards of behavior. So morality is no real indication of salvation, but there are reliable proofs of true salvation in your life. The Bible gives us lots of them. I'm just going to give you three this morning. They're in your notes, and I'll just go over them real quickly with you. First of all, it starts with Jesus, right, church? It all begins with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that issue dealt with first, you might as well not even go on to these other three. Acknowledging Him as your Savior and that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. But here's the first one, prayer. That might seem like a really simple one to you. Like, where are you going with this, Mark? Christians have an innate desire to talk to the Father. Even if it's in seed form in your life, there's a desire to call out to God. Where does that come from? The Holy Spirit generates that within you. Look with me on the screen at Scripture. It says this in Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has set forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, every single believer admits we don't pray as often as we should or as persistently as we could, right? We just don't. But the desire to communicate, even if it's in seed form, conversation with the Father is a desire of the heart. God says it's going to be true of you. That's the first one. Here's the second one. This is kind of obvious too. But it's true even though it's basic. Repentance from sin and hatred of sin. Jesus' own words, Matthew 6, 24. Nobody can serve two masters. He said it this way, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to one and despise the other. So a person who genuinely loves God is going to have an innate hatred of sin. It's impossible to love things that are contradictory to one another. Even though, now check yourself on this because we are rebels at the core. Even though your rebel nature draws you into sinful behavior... Even though that core part of you that wants to push back against God's laws finds you at times stumbling into things you don't want to do, we recognize and despise sin when it's in our life because a believer hates sin. Why? Because it's contrary to our new nature, to our walk with Jesus. So repentance is more than being sorry, as we talked about a few minutes ago. It's about going to the Father and saying, I hate this thing that's in me. I want to move away from this. That's why it's about more than just being sorry, but actually repenting. Here's the third one, a love for God. It's very basic also, but a mind that's hostile towards God, that's a mind that's loving the flesh and vice versa. So it says this, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Because it can't be both ways. An unsaved person can't love God and love the things of the world. A, a, a true child of God is going to have a life imprinted by the satisfaction of God, 
and a satisfaction in his word. Now, you might be reading those three things and thinking to yourself right now, man, I'm not sure I'm doing so good with those. I'll tell you, there's lots more in Scripture that give us evidences of our salvation, but hear me on this. Even if you find that you're not doing so good on those, but you know that you believe in Jesus Christ, you can say proudly with me the same thing I like to say, and I said it last week and I'll say it again, probably say it to the day I die. I am so glad that my salvation is not dependent upon my performance, amen? It's dependent upon God's provision, what He did for us. So when we recognize we fall short of the glory of God, that's just the Holy Spirit working on you, reminding you, yeah, you need me. You need me. You need me. I'm going to pray that God will imprint you with what we've studied this morning, that it'll stay with you through the rest of the week. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Now, Father, I thank you so much for these individuals, uh, both those who are online with us right now and and those who have um, stayed in the auditorium to be part of this service. God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work through your word together. So I ask that you would take the benefit of what we've studied and what we've uncovered here to imprint us. Cause it to stay with us beyond the parking lot. Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, remind us tonight and tomorrow as we sit down with individuals and try and show them your righteous standard. At the same time, we're reminded of who we are. So, Father, as we engage with people in in society, I pray that you would humble us, remind us of how far we've come, and cause us to be gentle and gracious as a result of it. I pray for this imprinting to change us. You said that your word doesn't go out without accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent forth, and it will not return void to you. So we claim that and ask that for our benefit. Now send us out, Father, with your blessing. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be together to worship you and study your word. We praise you in the name of the one who redeemed us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.